What is up, everybody? It is Wednesday. It's another co-main event podcast, Patreon live chat. You got Chad and Ben coming to you. We're going to spend the next 60 minutes or so taking everybody's questions, comments, and concerns over on the Patreon page. Thanks to everybody who stopped by there this week, as usual, to put their stuff in there. We couldn't do it without you, obviously. So we're excited for this. Obviously, this is a little bit of a different episode for the live chat since we missed Monday's proper. I was out in the woods camping with my family. And by woods, I use that term very loosely since we were actually at a, a very nice campground in uh, in the San Juan Islands, but couldn't get back for Monday, didn't do the proper. So we figure this week we will do this live chat and we will go ahead and put it up for free on the CME proper uh, uh, podcast feed so everyone can get this in lieu of actually having the proper this week. And uh, for all the people that aren't Patreon subscribers, maybe it'll also give them a little taste of the fun we have over here on Wednesdays, hashtag wild on Wednesdays, and just serve as a reminder to them that if they want to join the team, they want to get on board. It's real easy to do over at patreon.com slash co-main event. Get over there. We got three handy tiers of patronage. If you want to get the live chat every single week, it costs you $1 a month, which yeah. is a pretty, a pretty screaming deal. So we're going to get into that. We'll be taking, taking on all comers here, all questions over the next 60 minutes or so. We hope you enjoy this free episode of the live chat. Ben, folks, I feel like I haven't seen you for a while. How you doing? Uh, I'm discombobulated. I'll be honest. Yep. I have that man out of time feeling where uh, I, was, I was out at this campground, campground in the San Juan Islands, didn't have cell service out there. So for the, for most of the last four or five days, I haven't really been looking at my phone, haven't been checking my Twitter, been totally out of the MMA loop. And as we sit here today to record the live chat, discombobulated would be the yeah. word. I'm also discombobulated without having any of those valid reasons why. Part of it is that I realize when we mess with the CME recording schedule, I lose track of what day it is. Yeah. Because that's how I tell the days at this point. Also, my children not being in school because it's summer break now does not help that matter any. It's just every day begins with sunlight streaming through the window and a child asking me if she can watch cartoons at like five o'clock in the damn morning. And then it just goes on and on and on kind of endlessly. And without the CME to help me find my moorings, find my place in this world, I'm adrift. So I'm also kind of discombobulated. It's it's 10 o'clock in the one true time zone, 10 a.m. I feel like I've I've lived a whole day already. Yeah. Um, And... Just rushed back from the park with my kids in order to make it here to do this. So, yeah. And in the meantime, we're also still trying to put the finishing touches and make sure everything's ready to go for the CME meetup next weekend. Yeah, it's happening. Next weekend over 4th of July, we're going to be down there in Vegas for UFC. What is it? 276? Is that what 276. it is? We'll be down there with with a bunch of the patrons having a good time partying uh, we have a, a cool itinerary set up for that weekend. I think we'll talk a little bit about that uh, coming up. I'll be honest with you. We're we're coming in off this weekend where we had this uh, UFC on ESPN event where Josh Emmett beat Calvin Cater by split decision. And after that, or before that, I should say, since that was the main event, just a slew of stoppages, just a bunch of damn finishes 
the UFC must have broke the budget, handing out all these damn bonuses. It looks like yeah. they gave one to just about everybody who got a stoppage. I'll Will be they ever with- recover? Will they ever financially recover from that? <laughs> I'll be perfectly frank with you. I haven't watched any of it yet because we just got in <laughs> last night. So I haven't watched any of that card. Although now that I look at it, looks like it's going to take me about 10 minutes to, yeah. uh, to get there's through a it. lot of There's a lot of finishes on there. Um it's a it's a really good fight night card. You know, we've said this beforehand looking on paper. We're like, hey, wait a minute. For for the Just Some Fights era, this is a damn good fight night card. Yeah. I, I caught up with it uh the day after because I was off doing some camping myself that night. Um got caught in a nice uh thunderstorm while I was out camping, so that was fun. Um just laying in the tent, listening to the rain beating on the roof and being like, wonder how Calvin Cater's doing. <laughs> you know, but uh, I caught up with it and I was like, okay, people, people were not lying when they said that there's some good shit on this. So yeah, I'm sure we'll end up talking plenty of that. Do you want to know who's first this week? The coveted first spot. I do. I can't wait to find out. It's Dagger Stan. Whoa, not one of the normal, usual suspects. That's right. Who normally flies in and gets nabs first. Now, I, last week, uh, Ryan Robinson rolled in and was first and basically gave away the store, gave away the company store, gave away his secrets on yep. how he rolls up in here and gets first. So perhaps it is not a coincidence that the next week, the very next week, we got Daggerstan rolling up in here. Nabinwood has got to be one of his first career firsts. Well, he writes, after months of trying... Did I finally get first and only leave a placeholder comment? Oops. Ha ha. I've come, I've conquered, and I still thirst. And then he adds, in case you haven't recorded yet, how was the vacay, Chad? What did you do? Oh, this is the first question? Yeah. Well, we went to- Show us some slides from your vacation. (laughs) We went over to the San Juan Islands, which is a group of islands basically off the coast of Seattle. You got to take a ferry to get there. Uh, and we stayed at this, this campground that had a bunch of, and it was on a lake. You could rent boats, you could play volleyball, you could play the giant chess and checkers. What? Uh, so what? It, was, it was a nice place and, uh, basically partied around the Island with my, with my wife and kids and had a fun time. And, uh, then made the long, long ass haul drive home over the last couple of days, drove to Spokane and then stayed over there, drove the rest of the way, uh, yesterday. So it was, now, it was a fun time. I'm actually glad to hear you say that it had all this fancy stuff because my first thought was going to be, mm, that sounds like a long ass drive to do some camping. Yeah. One of the things that Montana has just in, in plentiful supply over the summertime, we got, we got some places you can camp out this motherfucker. That's right. We're not hurting for camping spots, but I guess I have not been to one where it has human giant sized chess and checkers. That's right. And plus we were on an Island, which was an endless topic of conversation for my children. <laughs> they just like couldn't get over that we were on an Island. And uh, so, yeah, no, it was, it was a fun time. We, we had one night in Seattle. We went to the Seattle zoo, which made my kids super happy. And uh, you know, we bummed around Seattle a little bit. Although one thing that was awesome about my, about my kids is that they totally, absolutely no sold to the pike street market like the the tourist opportunity that you see the guys throw the fish down there uh they were not having it they were like slightly impressed by the guys throwing the fish but other than that they were just like nope this sucks let's get out of here you know fair play to them they're they're not wrong about that i I also i couldn't help but notice 
we talked about this before you left and I was like, man, that's a long drive. What if somebody throws up in the car and you were like, no, don't even say it. It's not going to happen. Couldn't help but check out your Twitter feed yeah. and note that that it did happen. Yeah, th- about three hours into the drive, we were just rolling into Spokane last week. My youngest son threw up in the van. Although I got to say, man, my wife and I handled it like a pit crew on a damn NASCAR uh, race. Like that's how much experience we have at this point with all kinds of child bodily fluids. We basically like pulled over, changed his clothes, scrubbed it out. Uh, but, but went ahead and put everything in a plastic bag and just threw it away. You know how you do, uh, yep. which is, the, it was sad because it was the first time he'd ever worn this pair of shorts. So th- those shorts had about a three hour <laughs> lifespan before we threw those right in the trash at the Spokane Valley mall and then, uh, jumped back in and we were on our way again, man. It was, uh, it was a real parenting moment where you realize how veteran you are. Like we've been doing this for a while. Yeah, that's, that's experience. That's what it is. So, so it's a hard one experience, you know, you have to have lived and learned, but, uh, once you get there, you, you pray, you never have to use it. Uh, Neil says over the weekend, Julian Marquez got knocked out by hobo cop and as expected received a fair amount of hateful DMS from keyboard warriors. Julian screenshot his interaction with one of them who was mad. He bet some money that he did, that he did want to see again on Marquez. The post resulted in poor, sad, broke Tyler drawing the ire of other keyboard warriors. He slid back into Marquez's DMs to apologize and ask for the dogs to be called off, to which Marquez screenshot and posted that interaction with a very reasonable ask of not threatening Tyler and his family anymore. (laughs) Considering Julian took an L and a possible concussion while his opponent pocketed show slash win slash bonus money, would you say this little interaction could be considered a satisfying W to salvage some of the weekend? Also, happy birthday to my brother Chris, the one Brandon Barra threw in a fountain in 1999. <laughs> um, okay. I followed this story a little bit about what was going on with Julian Marquez and stuff. And it's one of those where I felt like, man, th- you're, you guys are just proving to me Twitter shouldn't have been invented. Because for one thing, I don't really care what your opinion of some fighter or professional athlete is. There's no reason for you to be in the DMs talking shit to them after they lose they lost they feel bad enough about it already if you want to talk shit about them in the public forum that is twitter that is your right i would argue we should really use that even like post loss shit talking opportunity sparingly and for those who really deserve it uh for example somebody like tony kelly who really kind of brought it on himself at every possible turn and then continued to bring it on himself after the fight I'm guessing there'll be a question about him later on down here, but don't like, what the fuck is wrong with you that you feel like you need to go in some fighters DMS or tag him even on his or on Twitter to talk shit about how he lost. He knows he lost. He feels terrible about it. Probably in addition to the actual physical feeling terrible about getting knocked out. You don't need this. this you piling on and who the fuck are you anyway? Yeah. To be talking that kind of shit. Like, what? why is it that? And especially if you're going to do it because you bet some money on him and lost. Motherfucker, he didn't tell you to bet that money. That's your money. You bet it on him and you lost it. That's on you. What do you want him to do about it? He didn't have anything to do with your money, your bad decision to bet it on him. Don't come to some fighter talking about how you lost money on him. He don't want to hear that. Nobody gives a shit about you and your money. 
Yeah, what do you want Julian Marquez to do? Scratch you a check for 20 bucks? Mail it to you? Sorry, I lost you your money, broke-ass Tyler. Like, people (laughs) act wild on the internet, man. What the fuck? Why would you do that? And then, not only people act wild, then when he's like, look at how wild people act on Twitter, the people who seemingly taking his side by being like, yeah, people act too wild on Twitter. I am going to take this opportunity to threaten this person and his family. Yeah. And like, now you're the person acting wild on Twitter. What yeah. the hell is wrong with you? Yeah. Everybody uh, just fucking relax. Just fucking relax for a minute here. It's a summertime. Everybody's doing their best. It's a difficult time to be a human being, to be alive. Just take it fucking easy. Man. Uh, perhaps the worst thing that Twitter has the worst feature of Twitter, the most potentially world destroying feature of Twitter is that you can at either at somebody, or I assume Julian Marquez must have the DMS open. Uh, you can, you can directly contact almost anyone in the world. And aside from like, you know, Dwayne, the rock Johnson or something, be reasonably assured that they will see it. And that, that is just destructive. We, there's Tyler broke ass. Tyler has no business being able to contact Julian Marquez right to his face. There should be multiple obstacles in the way of that. And Twitter has just yanked the rug out from under all of those societal uh, obstacles and allowed us to show our worst selves to each other in, in person. Yeah. Yeah. Have you ever heard the dudes uh, from Twitter or like the guy who invented infinite scrolling? On Twitter, like this genius computer programmer guy who was like the first person to come up with the idea that you shouldn't have to go in and like load up individual blog pages. Like remember in the old school days, you would like scroll through somebody's blog roll and then you'd get to the bottom and you'd have to load up the next page. The guy who was working for Twitter who invented infinite scrolling where you can just keep fucking refreshing that shit and just keep scrolling. Like when he invented it, he was like, oh, this is amazing. Like, this is going to be such a net good for the world. Like, this will allow people to just ingest so much more information and become so much more informed about the world around them. And then now there's a bunch of interviews out there with him where he was like, I destroyed the world with infinite scrolling. So that doesn't make him feel that good. Uh, Ben, folks, I got to throw this in there. You know, when I was out camping, I was slathering on the Fulton and Rourke deodorant every okay. day, keeping myself smelling fresh, even though I was I was out in the wilderness away from civilization. And the best part is that it comes in this handy, refillable metal tube. Like you can literally take it anywhere, refill it with the scent you love when it runs out. So despite the fact that I was out there uh, basically being Woodsman Jack for a week, uh, I was I was still smelling, just smelling like magic. Obviously, I couldn't wait to get back from the woods and shower up with the Fulton and Rourke body wash, the shampoo, the face wash I keep in my shower at all times. As usual, there's tons of cool stuff going on over at Fulton and Rourke. If you want to check it out for yourself, CME listeners can save 15% off their first purchase with the coupon code if you nasty. Again, that's the coupon code, all one word, if you nasty. Go over to FultonandRourke.com to check it out. Again. FultonandRourke.com. What I'm hearing is that you're out there, you're living like a savage, yeah. probably looking absolutely awful, but you smelled fantastic. Then I roll into the breakfast place to get my coffee or whatever, and people are like, wow, uh, you look like you've been living in the wilderness for a month, but you smell great. 
how this guy look like Robin Williams in Jumanji, and yet he smells like a million bucks. It doesn't yeah, make sense. Doesn't, doesn't track. Doesn't make sense. All right, Luke Edwards has asked some version of this question every week for like the past two months, so I'm finally going to read it. Hi, guys. I'm reposting this question as Patreon flagged it as spam. Anyway, I was just wondering if either of you had ever seen the Isle of Man TT races. They recently finished this year's event, and it might be the most dangerous sporting event that I can think of. It might even count as a blood sport, and I'm not sure if I should even enjoy it. Basically, it's a motorcycle race that takes place on a course of just under 39 miles of public roads, which goes through several small towns and villages just for fun. It also includes a mountain pass. They do up to six laps and can have an average lap speed of 134 miles per hour. There's very little in the way of health and safety, as even during normal times, there is no speed limit outside of towns and villages. If you crash during a race, you might be lucky enough to end up in a hay bale or unlucky enough to end up in a stone wall or lamp post. There were five fatalities this year. The what? average seems that two people unfortunately die each year, but it still manages to attract hundreds of thousands of people from all over the world to this tiny island to see and take part, so much so that you have to book your ferry and accommodation a year in advance. I went in 2014, and what struck me was watching in a small village with a local lady cutting her garden hedge, and on the other side of the hedge had a motorbikes going past her at 150 miles per hour. Also, if you slowed down the onboard footage, you could see my big bald head shining in the sun as the riders went past me. I'm really jealous that I'm not attending the meetup, but I would definitely get a bit drunk to try to pass Ben's weak-ass guard. You sons of bitches. <laughs> you're, you're all going to get swept and choked. Or fail and quit BJJ. Love you both equally. Uh, and then he attaches some links to videos. Um, I saw a thing, I think, on HBO Real Sports about this some yeah. years back. Yeah. And it is, indeed, totally insane. And... Especially if you tell me two people at least die each year, that there are five fatalities this year. When you show up to participate in something like that, do you just do the very human and frankly very fighter thing of it's not going to be me? Or do you think you show up having made your peace with that? Have I been like, it could be me. And you know what? It's that's part of the rush, maybe. Yeah, no, I'm sure that that is is part of the appeal for the people who do it, right? They're chasing that dragon. They're trying to get the uh, the adrenaline rush of uh, whizzing around on their motorbikes at 130 miles an hour, walking a fine line between life and death. I'm sure that that's that's why they do it. Which to me is uh, it's not for me. Let's just say that I'm not uh, I'm not going to be out there doing that. But uh, for for the people that that like to do it, I guess that maybe that's the uh, Maybe that's the best thing going is the Isle of Man race. I, I don't I don't know, but I agree that it is uh, crazy for them to go out there and do this. You know, I watched uh, recently on Netflix the documentary The Alpinist. Have you ever seen that? It's about the kid who's a free climber. Oh, yeah. Where these guys oh, just man. go out and they climb up these rock faces by them. This kid would go out, go out and do it by himself with no ropes or anything. And he was this like real affable Canadian a goofball kind of kid and like would just basically go do it for the experience for the the like the joy of it and to in his way like commune with nature and like be in the moment where you're out there free climbing up these these mountains these sheer rock faces and like some people do it kind of as sport and there's all these these records and stuff that that the people keep track of and this kid would just go out and like no one would even know he was doing it until he came down he'd be like oh yeah i like broke the speed record on this on this face, just uh, yeah, me too. Yeah, 
didn't even know I was doing it. And of course he died uh, at some point. And there was an, an interview with one of the, uh, like an alpinist historian. He was like, like 50% of the best free climbers die out there doing it. And I was kind of like, how was it only 50%? How did they <laughs> not all just die immediately? But again, it's just like the same kind of thing. Like they're, they're uh, that's their favorite thing to do. And, uh, and they, they kind of do it all the time seemingly without uh, without thought to their own mortality. Garrett Curie says, Greetings from the 602. Let's talk about the match. What is the match, you ask? I bite my thumb at the unknowledgeable one. The match is only the greatest kickboxing match of modern history. The little homie, Tenshin Nasukawa, fought Takeru Sagawa. It happened only a mere few days ago. How could you not hear about this? Well... Actually, I don't blame you. It had a rough go at it, just for the fight to happen. The promoter, Nobuyuki Sakubara, was slapped with many an allegation of being tied to the Yakuza. The TV sponsor that was supposed to show it dropped out due to these allegations, and the fighters weren't even sure if the fight would go off. And finally, it happened. A three-rounder, Tension's gas tank, probably attributed to this one, where the little homie won in a decision victory. It lived up to the hype, even if it was three rounds. If you did hear of this circus in the East, what say you? Ben and Chad. Now, I did hear about it. Frankly, though, one of the things that I heard about it that seemed to bring it to my attention the most was people talking about, are we even going to be able to see it anywhere? Yeah. And then I saw it mainly in clips posted to social media, like Twitter and Instagram and stuff. And frankly, from the clips, it did seem pretty rad. And yet, I... I understand I don't... There's probably a lot about Japanese culture and society that I don't understand. But I remember I was working on a story about Pride, uh, like, you know, some anniversary of the end of Pride. Like maybe it was the 10-year anniversary or something. And I was talking to some people who had fought in Pride and been involved in it and everything. And they were talking about the how one of the things bringing, that brought it down was the trouble getting a TV deal because of allegations of ties to the Yakuza. But they were like... That part, the Yakuza ties part, wasn't really news to anybody. It, it Everybody knew that the same way everybody knew, like, you know, your local 7-Eleven might have to have some kind of ties to the Yakuza. Uh, that was Ensign Enui telling me that, where he was like, a lot of, like, local businesses and stuff will have to have some kind of ties to it. And everybody is kind of cool about it unless it just becomes too public. And then they're like, mm, now it's a problem. And I'm like, but how is it not a problem just to be doing it in the first place? But it is, and especially if everybody knows that that's what's going on. But then it is a problem if everybody hears about it. And then the TV stuff immediately falls out. And you're reminded, oh yeah, a lot of these TV broadcast models that we've come to regard as pretty normal, especially for fight fans in North America, just don't exist and don't play at all in Japan. Uh, it reminds you what a different environment it is. And frankly, maybe it's a goddamn miracle anybody promotes any fights at all. Yeah, and apparently there's only one guy who does it. And, <laughs> and he's going to do it over and over again, yeah, like even that, if we know the same shit about him all the time. Right. That was my reaction to it when I found out about how they like lost their TV thing because uh, Sakakabara had these alleged ties to the Yakuza. I was kind of like, damn, still? Like... This guy, not only this guy is still like out there doing it. Like apparently once you become a fight promoter, you take a blood oath to do it for the rest of your life until you die. Like, cause it's like Dana White's the same way, right? Like 
if if Dana White wasn't the multi-hundred billionaire that he is now running around with the UFC doing all this stuff, he'd still be doing it. Man, he'd still be out there promoting uh, shady-ass boxing smokers for Bud Light in the back room of some bar somewhere. He'd still be doing it. It's in his blood. He can't help himself. Yeah. And it seems like the same thing might be true of Sakakabara just out there 20 years after Pride, still doing it, still putting together these kickboxing matches, still getting accused of the same underworld ties that he was accused of at the death of Pride. Just amazing. Amazing that he's still out there doing it. Um, Gabriel Gage says, Howdy gents, all I need to say is that Adrian Yanez is, and honestly has been, required viewing for casuals and shit-eating wild people alike. The dude is entertaining, technical, and fucking likable. And this is in all caps. We don't always get that last one. I try not to let my mind live in the world of predicting MMA talent, but I do think he'll be a lasting name in the division if this comment doesn't single-handedly curse his entire career. Thanks for hearing me out. Now, I agree with all this, especially I think that it helped that Adrian Yanez was put in this fight where a lot of, uh, for, for one thing, you know, not only does he get to go out there as a Texas guy in Texas, so he has crowd support just based on that, but against a guy who a lot of MMA Twitter has recently decided that they don't like due to just like racism and general shitheadedness in yeah. Tony Kelly. And they they packed a lot of living into three minutes and 49 seconds of this one. And it's true, like... I was enjoying somebody who was posting these clips to break down the way Adrian Yanez was countering off of all these kicks that Tony Kelly was throwing early on, where, you know, he's like catching the body kick, pulling it across, and then coming straight in with with hooks, basically. Instead of just trying to counter the the kicks with takedowns or with other kicks or anything, he's pulling that kick across kind of every time, and then boom, left hook, left uppercut, stinging you. You could tell it was hurting Tony Kelly, but you could also tell... He had the kicks built in to his game plan so much and to just what he was doing that he did not really have the ability to adjust. Even when he was getting stung on it, he would find himself in some of these situations and it's just like autopilot. He's throwing that kick and he can't quite figure out what's happening. And then to, to knock the guy out, you know, in front of your Texas crowd, uh, the guy's still going to be a dick about it afterwards and everything. Yeah. Keep trying to talk about how you weren't out. And it's like, bro. We all saw you. We saw you sitting up in zombie mode and not even facing the right direction. You were out. And then continue to be an asshole on social media and everything later. It really sets up Adrian Yanez to, to be kind of a, a hero figure. And I'm going to say this right now. If you don't follow Adrian Yanez on Twitter, you should. At Yanez MMA. Um, he, he's a good follow. And also, like how we were talking about how sometimes Twitter... You get to see the, everybody's worst selves. I kind of get worried a little bit about because Adrian Yanez is very uh, accessible on Twitter. Like he will talk to people, he will respond to fans, everything, and he seems to be just like a good, nice dude. And I'm like, maybe you shouldn't be on Twitter though. Maybe they will they will wear that out in you. These people, they, maybe these people will just eventually grind you down after too long on Twitter. But for now, I'm glad he's there. I just followed him because you told me to. I followed him mm -hmm. on your recommendation. The first thing I saw is that he's out here posting his Wordle score. Got his Wordle score. Yep. Got to be one of the handful of pro fighters who's posting his Wordle score on, on Twitter. Uh, Tony Kelly has had an inauspicious run. Yeah. Like, even in the wild and sometimes woolly and sometimes uh, inappropriate 
distasteful world of mixed martial arts, Tony Kelly has had a remarkably inauspicious run up to this point. What with getting caught in Andrea Lee's corner, uh, saying some racist stuff about Brazilians, and then not seeming to really comprehend or acknowledge any wrongdoing uh, there to go ahead and blame quote unquote cancel culture on you being an absolute dumbass in the corner while you're trying to work this fight. Anybody, it's amazing to me how, how far we are down the road here, where it's just like, there are these buzzword terms that if like anybody uses them in conversation or like on the internet, it's like an immediate red flag for what kind of person that is, right? Like if somebody online, even at this point, uses the word woke, Yep. In conversation, you immediately know, okay, this shithead is totally immersed in like weird conservative media. Cause that's, that's the only way that you would come to use that term in that way. And, well, cancel, with, and with sincerity at right. all. Yeah. yeah. Cancel culture is sort of like that. If someone cuck, starts, cuck is another one. Yes. If someone starts blaming cancel culture, you know, immediately where that person is coming from. And you know that you might as well just take their opinion, put it on a piece of toilet paper and flush it away because that's how much it's worth. Then the dude comes out, misses weight this week, right? And then goes out there and gets knocked out in his fight like that. Even in the world of mixed martial arts, where we are used to people doing bad things and people having rough roads, that's a rocky one, man. Like that's, that's not how you drew it up. That's not how you wanted it to go. But that's where, uh, that's where we find young Tony Kelly at this point. And it's hard to feel any sympathy for him. But also, I feel like we must look at it and say this is one of the more notably inauspicious UFC runs that we have seen. Yeah. Uh, Juan Pablo says, gentlemen, when I used to listen to the Fortnite every week, there was only women's 135 available. I remember Misha Tate saying that she would have liked to go to 125 because she was undersized for bantamweight. Now that she is finally doing that, is it a bit late? What say you? BTW, you guys interview about the golf situation was great to listen to. Well, he's referencing our last week's uh, Doing the Damn Thing, our, our Thursday podcast for our top-tier patrons, which we talked to ESPN senior writer Kevin Van Volkenberg about his work covering the, the new Live Golf Tour. A lot of people enjoyed that, and I'm glad, I was glad to hear that. Um, Misha Tate, at this point, talking about going to 125, I, I wonder a little bit if it's the fighter's false friend. Yeah. I also kind of, if she feels like she can make it without absolutely ruining her life and her body to get there, then I guess she might as well try. Um, I also, though, I I wonder a little bit about what the the end game is there. And if she thinks like, okay, if I get to 125, Misha Tate is enough of a name. Uh, you know, Valentina Shevchenko seems to newly have a little bit of competition. Do you think Bisha Tate sees something like what happened there in that, that Valentina Shevchenko fight with Tyler Santos and goes, you know what? Somebody who could go down there, be kind of big for the division, have some good wrestling chops, maybe could do some work. Maybe that's what we've learned here. Uh, I mean, she has enough of a name that it's not in, like totally out of the realm of possibility to think she gets one or two wins, says the right thing, and then she's in a title fight. Yeah, weren't they already kind of talking about it? Didn't Shevchenko already mention it as being a well, thing? Like if Misha Tate gets beats Lauren Murphy at 276, like that Shevchenko would 
consider fighting her like that's that's kind of crazy that that you would fly up the ranks that fast but despite the fact that uh valentina just kind of had this scare against tyler santos it's still a division that she has cleaned out a lot of the top contenders so i don't think it's out of the question that somebody with the name recognition of amisha tate might find herself on a short path to a title fight if she is able to be successful however like i do have the same concerns that you have and to just specifically reference the question asked here like at 35 years old it does feel a little bit late for misha tate already one retirement removed from mma to find what might be her natural weight class and i think we have seen that happen to different people in the past that it seems like uh they came to what might have been the best weight class for them a little bit late in their career and and so that's that might be the situation that you have with Misha Tate. And we, as you said, have seen in the past that changing weight classes is generally not the fix-all that people imagine it to be. It rarely is. But that said, like, I'm game to let Misha Tate try. Like, clearly yeah. she has earned that right, and she did so much at, at bantamweight, was the damn champion uh, for a hot minute up there. So if Misha Tate thinks she can be better at 125, I am supportive of the move. I'm just a little bit skeptical of her of it. And, like, uh, frankly, they didn't do her any favors either, being like, all right, go down to 125 and fight uh, Lauren Murphy right out the gate at UFC yeah, 276. Think- you're not going to... I understand you're not going to give Misha Tate like a tune-up fight down there. She's going to be right in the in the thick of it. But like, hey, man, if she can go down there and beat Lauren Murphy, like that's meaningful in that division. So we might as well bump her up the rankings. I don't necessarily know that one and straight into a title shot is the way to go. But like, if she wins that fight, then like, I guess you got to consider her kind of a, a, a force to be recognized at, at that weight class. Yeah, but I mean, I don't think that's a bad fight for her, just like style-wise and name recognition-wise, rise. Because you're right, they're, they're, Misha Tate is at that point where she's making enough money and got a big enough name that you're not gonna, they're not going to give her any easy fights. They're going to try to do something with every fight. And, you know, that's that one is one that if she is on point at 125, she could win. And if she does win, then, well, I mean, I think Valentina Shevchenko might have more business with, with Tyler Santos in the future. We'll see. Yeah. Uh, Aaron Dane says, how bullshit is it that Helwani wants to do a meetup in Vegas the weekend of the 4th? Please tell me you guys are going to rumble with their crew, a la Jets versus Sharks. Um, first of all, I would tell Ariel Helwani, you want to really plan a meetup, brother, it's not as easy as you think. <laughs> you know, yeah. you need to have some real logistics people on your team to help you out. Uh, and otherwise, you, you might think you're just going to be like, hey, who wants to get together at some bar or something on this? Like, fine, sure, fine, whatever. But like to plan a real Vegas meetup that weekend, you, you probably should have got going weeks ago. You probably should have had your people locking down some venues, looking at looking at some group rates booking your shuttles, things like that. Um, but yeah, I assume once the CME crew gets together, we'll do some dojo storming. Yeah. We'll go around to other various other meetups, kicking the doors. I uh, assume that the Ariel Hawani meetup will be some kind of black tie exclusive affair, like on one of those secret VIP hotels that's like on the top four floors of like a regular casino and nobody knows about it except you're, if you're like one of the top 5% whale gamblers at that casino you have access to this secret thing that's up but that's where helwani will be and the rabble the 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 people in the street the co-maniacs will be down there you know drinking our uh our pina coladas out of a giant glass shaped like a boot outside uh some casino in the fremont district or something 
this seems like as good a time as any to to talk about uh, our itinerary, is it not? What do you think about that? You ready yeah. for that? Yeah. Okay, because we got Tracy Brand dropping in here. Tracy Brand, key to the organizing efforts here of the CME meetup, uh, and has been from from day one. She writes first. A heartfelt thanks goes to CME benevolent Brandon Palinka for donating the funds to cover Ben and Chad at the CME anniversary party. Now that, we, we do need to pause for a moment here. She writes pause for the guys to comment. So we can thank Brandon Palinka for, yeah. for we, here we were, about to dig into the, the, the wallets, dig into the old money clips uh, to pay our way for the CME uh, meetup. Brandon Palinka, he stepped up. He said, no, I got you. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's an unbelievable display of largesse right it from is. brandon palinka like we got to reach out to this guy personally to thank him uh and i think the deal was like he's not going to be able to be there but he wanted to do uh some nice stuff for us so he went ahead and and bequeathed us that donation which is is the generosity of the beloved patrons of the cme continues to blow minds all over the world and this is just another example of that so a heartfelt thanks to brandon and if it makes him feel even better about this display. The The thing that this does is it just gives us more liquid operating funds to throw mm-hmm. up in the air when we all walk into the Spearmint Rhino or wherever, right? Like where, <laughs> whatever hot club we walk into, we're just going to be taking more of those hundreds and throwing them in the air. Like that's, that's what this uh, enables. Just so you know, when you talk about going to the Spearmint Rhino, everybody out there is picturing that meme of Smithers from The Simpsons covering his eyes while the the girls in bikinis are dancing. Tracy Brand continues with the itinerary here. It says, day two, officially we start at 420. Ha! When we look, quote unquote, refreshed, getting on the bus and head to our Rodizio celebration. Justin, a.k.a. the Silver Shark, has gone to great lengths for you at home to have the best quality CME live viewing experience. So even if you can't make the meetup, patron of this here podcast, you can join in the fun from at home. Uh, thanks to the Silver Shark there for making sure we got the, the audio visual set up. Uh, to make that happen. There will be unfettered discourse and a possible implosion when we get to number one on the co-main event power hour power rankings. That's a special social little tease. The guys have surprises up their sleeves and I'm not privy to and who knows what we come up with. The Fulton and Rourke founder, Kevin, is attending as well as other special guests, maybe even a call-in from Sir Nigel. I feel like we might even be able to do better than a call-in. I'm just saying. If the power hour wasn't enough, we proceed to imbibe meat on swords and $5 drinks all night. Fortunately, a bus will take us back where the youth will continue the Vegas party life and old fuckers like me will hit the hay for much needed R&R. I can be talked into dancing and hopefully we will find Chad playing acoustic guitar in front of the Bellagio Fountains. Day three, catering staff is ready. Volunteers are ready. Make some noise if you are ready. CME rooftop barbecue and pool party begins. Who am I kidding? Catering staff of one, but great peeps to help assemble and get this party started. Magnums of champagne, pina coladas, no rain, various soda pops, camaraderie, and laid-back celebration. Time to relax poolside with MMA discourse and enjoyment with like-minded folks. And it's spelled like my name. I see what you did there. May I tempt you with pasta salad, dips, snacks, and barbecue meats of all kinds with an array of accoutrements, most made lovingly by me and the rest Costco. I'm not that crazy. After nourishing ourselves, we will rally for an evening of actual MMA. We make our way across the street to a sports bar with TVs everywhere you, everywhere you look and plenty of room to spread out for our viewing pleasure. Dare I say, drinks included. What happens next, TBD? But please don't rile the MMA gods. See you all soon. So, 
that's just that's a whole lot of value for your meetup money yeah, right there. It is. It is the uh, the beloved patrons who got in and got on the list and are going to be down there in Vegas. We're all going to be having the time of our lives. And uh, luckily for the people who can't attend, uh, we are going to be live streaming that episode of the Power Hour on Friday, which I'm looking forward to. That everyone on the Patreon, I think, will be able to go over there and at least check in via Zoom to see how that's going. Uh, so that so that'll be a good time. But now that we are a week away from the 10 year meetup and it's going down for real. Uh, I'm excited, man. Like this, this is the kind of thing that started as a crazy, uh, hashtag just saying stuff idea. And now do almost entirely to the hard work of, of people like Tracy and Justin, it's actually going to happen and it's going to be wild, man. I kind of, I kind of can't wait. I'm getting excited for it. John Froman says, Duran Wynn breaking down his loss over the fight footage was fascinating. I liked how he expressed both his desire to keep looking for ways to stay in the contest while being genuinely appreciative of the ref's stoppage call. Do you think there's any chance we see this trend grow, or are fighters generally too macho to embrace a form of self-promotion that exposes their human side? Now, Chad, I don't know if you saw this, seeing as how you're just back from the woods and discombobulated, but, you know... Uh, I believe you had a bet down to this effect, so maybe you're not terribly surprised uh, with this outcome, but Phil Hawes looked good getting off the bus and especially, let's say, made good use of his height advantage over Deron Wynn because immediately as soon as this fight starts he, and he is towering over Deron Wynn and he's just like, jab, just jabbing you straight in your eye fucking immediately and then proceeds to absolutely demolish Deron Wynn who... Showed a ton of heart and toughness just to stay in the goddamn fight as long as he did. And then yeah. he posted, I believe, on his Instagram and it got reposted on Twitter where he does basically voiceover commentary of his own loss. And it is very honest and funny, uh, especially where he talks about how Phil Hawes keeps elbowing him. And he's like, he elbows me for the two millionth time. I'm fucking tired of getting elbowed in my head. I'm trying to elbow him back. And, you know, he's like, oh, here, I, I throw a punch. I, I sprawl. I think I'm on to something. I'm trying to make it messy. And then he start, then he elbows me again. I'm like, God, Herb, where your ass at? Yeah. Uh, I, I do. I mean, when you see something like this, the response to it from fans is almost never negative on the whole. Like people do enjoy that, especially because it's so rare to see a fighter be honest about their own performance and be, uh, you know, tell us here's what I was really thinking in there. Even if I was trying to act, maybe like I was upset about the stoppage or whatever, like in reality, I was ready to go at that point. Uh, I, I always think it's a good idea. And I just think that, Fighters, because of the way they're kind of made psychologically, it's the exception rather than the rule. Yeah, It's far more common to see people doing the Tony Kelly thing of being like, oh, there's stuff going on in this fight. And anyway, he's scared of the rematch. And you're like, bro, it, first of all, it just fucking happened <laughs> just now. And he beat the shit out of you. I don't think if he doesn't want a rematch there, I don't think it's because he's worried about the fight. I think it's because he's like, how would it possibly go better for me? What would be the point of me rematching you? I would rather fight somebody higher up the rankings. I just smoked your ass. There's no point in me smoking your ass again. Yeah. And and like that's somehow, though, way more common of a reaction than somebody being able to look back and be like, well, here's where he is kicking my ass. Yeah. I mean, I can't believe that I had that whole conversation about Tony Kelly's inauspicious run and failed to mention the fact that he jumped on the internet and and immediately following a knockout loss was like he does not want to see me again which is <laughs> like that is the consummate 
mixed martial arts fighter response to getting knocked out. It's like, oh, that guy, he wouldn't want to see me again. And he wouldn't want to take another chance against me. Uh, but you're right. It's super refreshing when you see somebody like Deron Wynn do this kind of thing online. And and dare I say, a little bit like almost shades of Daniel Cormier here. Like we know that, that uh, you know, Cormier and Deron Wynn are... are our boys, and we know that um, Duran Wynn is a protege in some ways of of DC, and a little bit of a little bit of a Cormier style vibe to like a very honest uh, breakdown of your loss and posting that on the internet, which I'm all for. It makes Duran Wynn seem super likable to me, uh, and, and like as you kind of want to see Duran Wynn fight again, frankly, after after that kind of a breakdown, uh, which might not be the case if you just watched him kind of get pieced up by Phil Hawes and then uh, stopped, you might not be thinking about when is Deron Wynn going to fight again. So not only is it like refreshing and you, you love to see it, but it also like it's good PR, man. Like now I, I'm kind of interested to see Deron Wynn come back and try to do better. So uh, it's, it's a win all the way around. Yeah. Except I also don't think that he's just too short too short for that division yeah and, and you know i saw him on twitter he was I, I saw just this morning where he was saying every time when he is on there talking about like here's what he needs to do people are like you need to get a nutritionist and get down to 170 and he's like fucking every time every time i post about some shit like this there's a bunch of responses telling me this and he's like i've talked to people about getting down to 170 i don't think a would be possible but also b very good for me i mean it is a fucking 15 pound difference like that's the big gap between the weight classes right there yeah. and also even if he did go down to 170 he'd still be short for the division he'd still be short for for, uh, for average welterweights and you know maybe just a little less but not that much less and he'd be killing himself to get down there and but it's like it's the same thing i remember dan hardy saying when uh he was losing on that bad losing streak when he was in the UFC. And he was like, I could post anything on social media, a picture of like, uh, you know, me and my girl going to a movie and people would be like, you need to be in the gym working on your wrestling. And he'd be like, fuck, you know what? I have been, I have been, I'm taking a break for fucking two hours. Take my mind off it. Go to the fucking movie. And you just can't let me alone. You just yeah. can't let me enjoy the movie. Yeah. You know what's crazy about Deron Wynn? People saying he should go down to welterweight is that he started at light heavyweight, like first half dozen fights of his pro career were at 205. So he already moved down to <laughs> to get to middleweight and now it's too small there. So yeah, he's he's got kind of a uh it's not like the most ideal. He's just like kind of a, a, a an unfortunate tweener, like not the most ideal body type for those weight classes, which is too bad. Um okay. Nick Jones says, great conversation about live golf on DDT this week. It made me want to give y'all a hypothetical. Dana White takes you guys to that new place on the Vegas Strip for dinner and says he wants to become a quote-unquote producer for the CME. He likes your guys' voices and wants to make sure it's you two still making the podcast, but he does have, let's say, some notes about your discussions regarding the UFC's dictator, him, and their own human rights abuses, fighter pay. How much money does he have to give you to make it happen? Also, does Chad know what a stakeum is yet? I guess you haven't had time to to really delve into stakeums after you were asked about it on last week's chat. Yeah, I think answer to both of those questions is no. Yeah. Uh, I also think maybe we've hemmed ourselves into a corner here because the CME has cultivated exactly the sort of listening audience that would be the least tolerant yeah. of us <laughs> going up to the UFC. Yeah. You know, if I, it, we were suddenly out here in our fight kits and just yeah. being like, oh, who's excited for the fight night this weekend? 
you know what? I think all the fights are good. I, uh, every time. Before I even know what they are, I think they're good. Yeah. Uh, yeah I, our listening audience, more so than most, would not be tolerant. But you know what? I've heard Josh Gross tell the story about Dana White when he was like the share dog editor. Dana White inviting him to the uh, Zufa offices and, and under the pretense of like, we'll let you sit in on a matchmaking meeting. You can write about that, that kind of thing. But then being like, hey like trying to hire him basically to, to, I don't know, to be the UFC.com editor or just like sort of trying to rope him in and then being like, Oh, so what do you like? Are you going to be my guy? That kind of thing. And Josh Gross being like, no, that's not what I want to do. That's not what I'm in this for is to like work for the promoter. Uh, and maybe Dana White not taking that super well. So, uh, we've been telling you guys about Nord VPN for a while now, how it's the fastest VPN out there, how it's an encryption powerhouse, how it's super easy to use on all your devices, protect your personal information while you're traveling, where you're going from public Wi-Fi to public Wi-Fi. Now let us tell you about the Nord Security Bundle. Just like the CME Patreon has three handy tiers of patronage, NordVPN has three easy options for how to use it. You can get the standard plan for your basic VPN needs. You can get the plus plan if you need a little something extra. And if you want to go for the big dog, if you want to go whole hog on this thing, you can get the complete plan, which will take care of all of your VPN. VPN needs. You can enjoy the leading VPN service and malware blocker, generates and store strong passwords, protect your files in an encrypted cloud. Grab your exclusive NordVPN deal by going to nordvpn.com slash comain or use the code comain to get one free bonus month and their exclusive 30-day money-back guarantee. Again, that's nordvpn.com slash comain or the code, all one word, comain. Here's one from Sean Morrow who says, With Cerrone versus Lauzon falling through again, it made me think of bouts that got away, which got me thinking of bouts that never happened that you thought did happen. For example, I was telling a friend about the Bisping Revenge Tour where he beat Rockhold for the title and then got revenge by knocking out Hendo and Belfort. Later, I remember that Bisping didn't actually knock Hendo out, but couldn't remember how he beat Belfort. No wonder. I checked and he didn't actually face Belfort again. Damn, I thought I saw that, pal. I never corrected myself to my friend because my version of the story is better than the truth. Any fights that never happened that give you that kind of deja no sort of experience could swear it happened, but on review, find out it didn't. Uh, you know what I have more than this is fights that happened that we wanted or, or something for one reason or another, and then they eventually did kind of happen, but then I it's hard for me to get my brain to believe it. And the prime example for me is Chuck Liddell and Vanderlei Silva. Because remember when we wanted that so bad, when Vanderlei was the guy in Pride and Chuck Liddell was the guy in the UFC and we'd get up there and talk shit to each other and it really seemed like, oh man, like this is the cross-promotional fight. Uh, and then Vanderlei came over and remember it was supposed to be like if Chuck Liddell beat Keith Jardine, then we were going to do it. And Keith Jardine actually edged out a decision over Chuck. And when it did finally happen, it was a few years past the expiration date and for some reason i was not able to watch it live i can't remember what i had that night but i had like something i had to go to in person actually be a person in the world and didn't see it live circle back watched it later but it just didn't take in my brain and years later i'd find myself being like damn it's a shame we never got vanderlei versus chuck and it's like oh we did kinda in a way but to me somehow no my brain just insists no we never got that one yeah and i'm sort of like the uh Unfortunately, the the default setting for combat sports, right, is that a lot of times when you get these dream fights, they come along 
later than you would like or, or when both guys are past their prime or what have you. Uh, it is interesting to just make up fights whole cloth in your mind brain that you swear happened that then you find out didn't actually happen. And I guess that is yet another reminder of how long we've all been doing this and how many fights there have been and how like how much it it has uh, infected our souls that we're out here unable to remember which fights happened and didn't happen and which which. Uh, fights we just imagined. I do like that uh, to stick to the story because you feel like your version of events is better than the actual <laughs> truth. Uh, can you imagine me being out there camping with my family and then we get to uh, a town where I had internet access and I got on to check the results of this fight night and refreshed and saw uh, that Donald Cerrone and Joe Luzon had been canceled and that I was like, wait, again? Or yeah. am I looking at the wrong thing? I had that moment where it was <laughs> like, well, that date. couldn't have- that couldn't have happened again. Like I must be looking at the old thing. And then you go on the news and just like, Oh shit. The old well, man's okay. trick knee. You, you, you were a little over 15 minutes in. So we're going to go to, you know what time it is. It's Tracy time. Tracy Dickinson writes is the way that the Joe Lozon Dan- Donald Cerrone fight got called off at the last minute for the second time. The most almost 40 year old shit to ever happen before a fight. All was good. They both made weight. Everybody was happy. Then Joe goes to put some socks on and locked his damn knee out, leaving him unable to walk. Have you ever related to a fighter so much? To be fair, I haven't locked my knee out putting on socks before, but I'm currently feeling a twinge in my lower back and couldn't figure out what happened. I then realized I'd been sitting cross-legged on the couch for 10 to 15 minutes, which my 43-year-old body must have decided was a no-no, and payback was needed. Any words of wisdom for our guy Joe Lozon to follow before his next fight so this type of thing doesn't happen again? And Aaron Danes mentions how uh, Joe said like somebody just in a, like a reply comment gave him some trick to help deal with his knee and that apparently it worked for him. And if it, but you're right. I mean, every time I saw some shit about like, Oh, we're going to like Joe Lozon made weight, but then we couldn't do the face off cause he was having cramps or something. And you go, Oh no, are we yeah. going again? And like, this is the problem when you're trying to make some of these old guy fights where you're like, ah, oh, here's two guys. I don't, why don't we have a couple old dogs fight each other? Well, because they're both broke down as shit after years and years and years of fighting and putting their bodies through the, through this shit. It's like trying to get two old guys to be able to agree to and show up on the date to fight each other. It's kind of like when two parents try to make plans Yeah, where either one of us could have some shit come up a child throws up uh, a child runs into a wall splits their head open so a babysitter falls through either one of us could have some shit happen if you have one parent that's already some volatility in the plan making situation you have two different parents with different sets of kids trying to make plans it's a miracle that it ever happens at all yeah and at this point with Cerrone and and Lausen, it's uh it's a little farcical so i was i was kind of I support the UFC's move to not try to make it again. That to just, who knows what would happen if they tried to book it for the third time. Yeah, well, I mean, and it's not as if we were like, we cannot move on with our lives right. until we see this shit. Like, you know, we, we could probably, we'd probably get by. You know what I'm saying? Be okay. All right, a little lightning round before we get out of here. Aaron Dane says, if you somehow got invited to go on JRE, that is the Joe Rogan experience, Chad, what topics would you steer the conversation towards? Fighter pay, transgender rights, COVID-19, aliens, favorite tincture? Or would you just get really stoned and talk about how crazy the universe is, man? <laughs> um, 
the thing I would want, I guess, that I would want to hear Joe Rogan talk about and be pressed on a little bit is, for one thing, how does he, how does he navigate in his own mind this role where he is a has been a longtime voice of the UFC, the point where people really associate him with the UFC. He knows a lot of these fighters really well and has you know, been in the gym with some of them, knows how hard they train, knows what they go through, all this stuff. And yet also seems like he knows enough, or at least point should know enough, to know that the way they're treated by the UFC is not great. And he's at a weird sort of intersection with this stuff because he, Joe Rogan, is now a member of the elite wealthy yeah. Like he he's not of the people anymore. And he's not anywhere close to where the fighters are anymore. And yet he has like he knows what they go through enough that he should realize that they deserve better than what they're getting and he's in a position where he can actually push for it. So then how do you not? How and yeah. like how do you kind of just sit there and continue to rake in your enormous wealth while these people who you you know what kind of suffering and sacrifice and everything they go through um and just be like eh, that sucks i wish i wish you guys got paid better got treated better that's too too bad though yeah uh i don't think we have to worry cuz i don't think the invite is forthcoming for yeah. either of us mm-hmm. uh to to go on any of those particular shows i mean and i don't know if if especially in public or whatever that he would ever come up off it but it's it's it would be interesting to talk to him about his approach to doing his show because a lot of the kind of like stoned off the cuff nature of the discussions you could argue like is kind of the secret to his success in a lot of ways like that's one of the very things that appealed to so many people that was able to make joe rogan's podcast as huge and popular as it is today. But now that he has that audience and we've seen it several times recently uh, where his kind of like no prep or low prep off the cuff discussion style doesn't seem to fit with the platform that he has now. Uh, it would be interesting to, to ask him about that and just sort of be like uh, in one way, I suppose it's understandable and admirable to not change the, the, preparation or the plat of the or the like style of your show but on the other hand now that you're doing it for millions and millions of people it seems like it is it is uh irresponsible in some ways to like have many of these conversations where like you don't actually know the facts and like you haven't bothered to check until sometimes right in the middle of the show where you get fact checked and find out the thing you're saying is not right and then sometimes the person who is on your show is like well it seems true to me in spirit yeah. So, like, I don't know if he would ever address that or or talk about it in a meaningful way, but that would be another thing that I would that I would ask him about his success. David E. Lauderay says, "Well, shit, twenty eight minutes in, ain't no way this is making the cut anyway." Well, that's showing him. You guys have really become more politically outspoken in the last couple of years, and I'm curious about your thoughts on being friends with conservatives. Being a mid thirties man with kids, it's tough to make time for friends in general, and in Montana, it's particularly hard to find a group of like minded individuals. Do either of you have any friends who are pleasant to be around and who you respect their intellectual capabilities, but for whatever reason they're conservatives? Does it get in the way of your friendship? If you don't, have you drawn a hard line in the sand that you won't be? Friends Friends with conservatives, or has it just generally naturally worked out this way? Yours truly, lonely in Montana. Um, I think one of the things that you have to make a, a differentiation on is 
what we're talking about in terms of how our political beliefs may differ. Because I think in years past, it was a little easier to imagine a situation where it's like, oh, well, okay, if the difference between us is I think the government should take an active role in making sure that people's lives are tolerable. And you were like, no, the big government always is bloated and, and inefficient and can't do things. And, and we're better off to having as little of it as possible. And I could be like, well, okay, I, I disagree, but I could see how one might have that view. And that, you know, if it's a point of contention between us, we could just not talk about it because it's not an essential thing. Right. But especially more recently, as conservatism has in many places, in many ways, come uh, pretty much synonymous with like Trumpism. And as we're sitting around and you're listening to this, the January 6th hearing stuff where you have all these people. Like actual, you know, Republicans who are in government, elected officials, people who are nonpartisan, like election officials, all these people saying like, here are the ways this one person tried to destabilize and essentially destroy and undermine our democracy. And it's like, if you hear all that stuff and you still are down with it, then I, don't, I can't, I cannot imagine what's going on in your brain. Yeah. Like that's the kind of stuff. And it's, you know, and it's true in a bunch of other ways where it's like, well, hey, if we want to argue about how taxes should be levied and distributed and the, the money spent, we could differ on that. If we're going to argue about which people are people. No, we, like if we disagree on that, like if you don't have that kind of like sort of basic empathy and respect for other people, then we can't be friends. And that has nothing to do with politics. That's just, I mean, like a central view of humanity. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. It's changed a lot uh, in the last handful of years. Uh, and I do. I have a friend that is one of my best friends from childhood that I'm still in contact with and friendly with. And, and he has always been a conservative. And we just kind of like don't talk about that. Uh, we stay on the topics of the things that we uh, like and, and share together or like shared interests. And uh, but it's got a little bit harder of the last several years to like ignore those topics or to to like, I don't really know like what he thinks or what he believes or if, how, you know, how, uh, supportive or not supportive of, of the changes in the conservative wing of American politics over the last couple of decades. Uh, I don't know if he supports it or if like he feels weird about it or whatever. And I'm kind of, of a scared to know the answer, frankly. Uh, and the same is true of like some of my wife's relatives, like one wing of her family is very conservative. And the thing is like, they are smart, good people that we have fun with when we see them. They live on the other side of the country. And when, when we visit them, like we always have a good time. And like, it, I'm always just like, I don't understand how these people that I know and like could, could support this thing that is so like obviously destructive. And again, I return to the idea of like, maybe I don't want to know. Yeah. Uh, Brandon Boyd says Carlos Sparza said she's injured and not going to rush into a title defense with the lack of offense in her fight against Rose Namajunas. I question how she could have been injured. If I were a fighter, I wouldn't want to fight hurt either. But this leads me to this question. How often should champions defend their titles and should MMA have a title of defense deadline? Now, I saw she's getting a lot of stuff. I saw her interview in the New York Post and uh, other stuff with like MMA junkie and MMA fighting with her talking about kind of her plans and it seemed like she at first was resistant to Zhang Wiley's proposal. Let's meet in Abu Dhabi on, and that was going to be what, like August or September, maybe even October or something like that. Um, 
It seemed like it was five or six months away from her last, from her fight with Rose Namajunas, and that was the, the proposal. And she was saying, I'm not on her timeline. And it did sound like she was also saying, I've got lingering injuries, which I, don't just look at the fight and be like, how you get injured? What did you do in that fight to get injured? Because they both went through a full training camp. And if she has lingering in- injuries from that, that might have affected, for one, her, the output in the fight itself, but also... I I totally think it's reasonable what she was saying when she felt like she rushed too quickly into her first title fence against Yuani and Jacek and lost the belt. I don't think it would have made much difference how much time she'd take it. But if, especially at her age, her, she's got the belt now and it's not like the UFC necessarily was super enthusiastic about her fighting for the title in the first place. I get it that you, now should be when you take the approach of like, look, I'm going to make sure I'm good and damn ready when I defend this title because I know if I lose it, they are not going to turn around and give me an immediate rematch. Yeah. I'm not going get to get another shot at it. So if that's how they're going to treat me, I'm going to make sure I'm not doing it until I'm ready. That's totally fine. Um, but I also worry a little bit about, she seems like she is trying to exercise some leverage that she might not necessarily have. We've seen even, man, uh, Davey Figs will tell you, even if you fax over your medical records, even if you think you got those into the office that you proved that you're hurt, it doesn't necessarily mean the UFC will will wait for you. They'll create yeah. an interim belt or something. They'll be happy to move on without you. And it's especially true if you're Carla Esparza, who they're not super enthusiastic, who nobody right now is super enthusiastic about. And I heard her talking about how she just thinks like, oh, you know, maybe I'm in Marina Rodriguez. That's the one maybe we want to go ahead. She has more of a claim to the title fight. And it's like, man, look, have your opinions, all that stuff. Right now, the energy and enthusiasm is behind Zhang Li getting another title shot. And the UFC wants it because they'd love to have a Chinese champion. Fans want it just because they get excited about her because she's exciting as hell and good as hell. If you want to be looked at as a real champion and have people take you seriously there, you're going to have to fight her and beat her. So do it when you need to do it, when you're healthy and all that. But uh, don't think you can push it too far. Yeah. Yeah, and if you look at, again, not to sound like a broken record, but the way things went down with Francis Ngannou, like clearly at this point, the UFC will do that to anybody. Like if they're going to do it to Francis Ngannou, like have an interim title after four months when he doesn't defend it, like they'll do it in a heartbeat to Carla Esparza. So like, yeah. uh, I'm glad that she has this title reign, I guess. I hope that like she gets paid some money for her next fight. I hope that she's able to do it on her own terms. But at the same time, and this is like one of the bedrock problems with this argument that you always see on the internet where people are like, oh, well, they, they negotiated these contracts. Like now they got to, now they got to fight out those terms. Like if you didn't like the the terms of the contract, you should have negotiated harder. Or you shouldn't have signed the contract that you didn't like. And it's just like, even a champion like Carlos Barza has a very, very little bargaining power with the UFC. Like, yeah. I don't know how you would sit down and like hammer out a deal with the UFC because like, they're just going to offer you what they're going to offer you. And if you say no, they'll just take the title away from you and give it to somebody else. So, uh, I hope that she's able to get some things done for herself and like feel healthy and ready to defend the title and get paid some money. But at the same time, like you're going to have to do it eventually. And there's a good possibility that won't totally be on your own terms. All right, we're going to do two more and get out of here. One, Alex Penny says, According to Jim Miller, the UFC is forcing him to fight out his contract, with his last being against Bobby Green at UFC 276, rather than offering him a new deal. Ain't that some bullshit? Hopefully younger fighters realize that being a company guy isn't isn't worth much. Who am I kidding? Fighters never learn until it's too late. Um, I mean, I, I get what the UFC is thinking here, and honestly, 
if if the choice is between telling the guy, uh, hey, we're we're gonna opt not to offer you a new contract, uh, you can fight this last fight on it, and then uh, you're in free agency, then I think that's a better alternative for somebody like Jim Miller in his position than them being like, okay, sure, we'll give you this last fight on your contract if you sign six more. Yeah. So that we'll ensure you can never go anywhere else. Um, or we'll, we'll hold you up, giving you the last fight on your contract to try to squeeze out the, the remaining prime that you may have the way they're doing an eight DS. Yeah. And like, this is honestly better. And honestly, if I'm Jim Miller, maybe it's not the, if he does want to continue fighting somewhere, maybe it's not the smartest move to go out there and tell everybody the UFC is not offering me a new contract because, if you go to do some free agency negotiating after this fight, if you know that you're you're going to be out there on the free agency market after this fight, regardless of whether you win or lose, maybe it would be helpful for some other people to at least have the possibility of thinking that they might be bargaining against the UFC. Uh, but he's 38, I believe, at this point. Let's see. Jim Miller. Yeah, he's 38. He'll be 39 in August. He's got a two-fight win streak going, so that's nice. Um, against Bobby Green, that's a tough, tough assignment in his last fight there. But you know, if he were, even if he were to lose that one, he wants to fight somewhere. Somebody else could use a guy like Jim Miller. Uh, I don't think it's necessarily terrible of the UFC to be like, okay, we we do not see a long-term future in the Jim Miller business at this point. Like that's, that's some of that math is just the way pro sports work. Yeah. Some of it just has to be pragmatism when you get down, you know, toward the end of it, nobody's going to be there forever. Nobody's going to be able to fight forever. And I think you're right. It's if Jim Miller wants to continue fighting, like this is the better opportunity for him to fight out his UFC deal and then try to go somewhere else because it would be much worse. Like you said, if they locked him into a long-term deal with no, real uh good faith plans to have him fight again like because then he just couldn't do anything so uh i think this is this is the better uh, option for him all right last one tom hughes says hi fellas the ufc's choice of employing current and affiliated fighters in televised roles is proving to be really awkward you've got cormier commentating on fighters he's worked with uh duran fighters he's worked with drawn win and keeps singing the praises of Islam Mahachev whilst having a working relationship with Islam's coach. Cruz is allowed to talk up his bout with Cheeto Vera without Cheeto having the ability to respond. I don't want to put fighters out of their jobs, but stopping conflicts of interest would at least give me a reason to stop watching fights with the sound off. Keep up the good work. Um, now, uh, you may not have seen this, Chad, but this was there was an awkward moment here where after Phil Hawes puts this beaten on Deron Wynn and Daniel Cormier gets in the cage to do the interview and like we're kind of waiting until we're back from commercial to do it, but there's this clip of Phil Hawes yelling at Daniel Cormier, telling him, you know, you picked the wrong horse. This is your yeah. guy, you know, and then you you picked him. I I beat him. And for one thing, uh, I think Daniel Cormier handled it pretty well because he was just like, hey. You didn't, for one thing, like you didn't beat me, uh, and and like I didn't want th- this fight, like for Duran, like look what happened. Why would I want that fight? I didn't, I didn't want it for him. Um, but like, you had a good moment. Don't ruin it by being a dickhead afterwards, essentially. And he's right about it. Like, it did seem like you know you just won the fight. Fighters often get that bunker mentality, like where they like to believe everybody is against them, and especially if you're like okay. The UFC loves Daniel Cormier. He's going to be on commentary. Daniel Cormier's boy is going to be fighting me. Everything is allied against me. Uh, And then you go out there and you win. You're probably pretty pumped up at the moment afterwards. And you're feeling 
Like you take on the world and maybe you just, your mouth gets carried away. And afterward, he did pretty quickly apologize. He's like, you're right. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. But like, it does, like, it does seem like you open yourself up to these situations. I used to think it was the problem was hiring too many active fighters as commentators, but DC is, we all know he's retired and, and fat and happy and enjoying the retirement life. And it still happens all the time with him. Yeah. I mean, in a perfect world, you would probably have a setup where you didn't have fighters in the booth for fights involving people that they were close with or had trained or, or et cetera, et cetera. But the truth we is have like, seen people recuse themselves occasionally yeah, on those yeah. grounds. But like the truth is, man, there's so many fights at this point. It would be an organizational nightmare to try to figure out like, okay, well, we can't have Daniel Cormier on this fight or have him at this event. We can't have Paul Felder on this one. We can't have Michael Bisping on this one. Like the, the schedule is such where like, they don't want to have that additional scheduling nightmare. So I think that they just don't uh, address it at this point. And I think for the most part, that's okay. Like we, there are these awkward circumstances, but it's not like it happens every time or anything like that. And most people, most of the time we, you can navigate those waters, even if it is a little awkward without like a public display like this. And that's what makes the Phil Hawes situation notable when it did happen is like, we don't see that all the time. Uh, but, but like, you're right. It is like a, it's an, there's an, uh, the possibility of awkwardness and conflicts of interest and that kind of stuff exists in this, in this field. But at the same time, like, I don't know what you do to get around it. Like the, for the most part, I think it's good to have those fighters in the broadcast booth. I think the UFC broadcast is better for it, for having Daniel Cormier and Paul Felder and Michael Bisping and, uh, Dominic Cruz and people like that on the broadcast. I feel like they bring stuff to the broadcast that we didn't used to get when it was just Goldberg and Rogan all the time. And so like, I think it's, it's makes for a better product and like, if I, maybe from the UFC standpoint, like if you do get into a Daniel Cormier, Phil Haas situation, like maybe that's good for you. If you're the UFC, like maybe it just means more attention and eyeballs and you don't really care. Uh, so for the most part, I don't think it's a huge deal. It's not like it's affecting the competitive balance of the sport in any way. I don't think. And so, uh, I'm generally okay with it. Although I agree, like if you could figure out a way to keep the system in place and not have these situations crop up. That would probably be for the best, but I just think it seems too hard to avoid them all. Yeah. All yeah. right. That's going to do it for this week's live chat. Thanks everybody for putting in your questions. Uh, we'll be back tomorrow for the Patreon uh, people for doing the damn thing. And again on Friday for the power hour. So uh, join us for that. If you're not a member of the Patreon, consider signing up to join the team, go to patreon.com slash co-main event. You can sign up there. Uh, we'll talk to you guys tomorrow. Thanks for listening. As for right now, We're done.